Amen. Today's reading will come from Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, and we will begin in verse 30. And it reads, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in the cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in bed and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Uncomfortable passage. This is the Lord of the Lord. May the Lord bless the hearing, the reading, and understanding of his word today. Amen. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful occasion that we have to gather here in this space, in this moment, in your name, and for the incredible privilege to call on your name in prayer. But we don't take this for granted. We know that we can approach you only through Christ's atoning work. But we come with confidence because of his work, confidence that you will hear and that you will answer our prayer. We pray especially today for Alex and Amanda and Josie and Allie as they serve you in Central Asia. What a sweet family and faithful servants in your kingdom work. We ask this morning that you will continue to bless and use them for your glory, that you give them nimble minds to learn language well, to enable them to serve you well through Hope Church there. Guard the fellowship of believers in which they're a part as they seek to advance the gospel in a dark place. I pray that you would unify all of them in a supernatural way for your glory and for their protection. I pray for their leadership, that you'll give them wisdom, that you will fill them with your spirit. Lord, for those that Alex and Amanda are sharing Christ with, I pray that your uh, spirit might penetrate the darkness of their soul and save them. I pray, Lord, that you would remove the scales from their eyes and warm their distant hearts. Transform them from sinners to saints. May you bring joy and contentment to bear in Alex and Amanda's home. 
Bless them as they nurture and guide the children you have given them. Guard their marriage and make it fruitful and rich. Lord, we pray uh, for the opportunities that we had yesterday here in our community, that you will use those conversations to advance the gospel, that you will touch hearts for your glory, that you will use yesterday to fuel all of us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you will protect many of our folks who are traveling. Allow them, Lord, to know even now that we miss them while they're away and pray that you would bring them back safely. We pray for our brother Yuri as he serves you in Ukraine. That, Lord, you would protect him and that you would uh, continue to use his skills there as he ministers. And that, Lord, you would bring him back safely in the days to come. Lord, we live in a world that's filled with chaos and conflict. Everywhere we look, we see the evidence of this. And even as we're reminded, Lord, of the fallenness that plagues our world, we thank you for the clarity of the gospel. We thank you for the compassion that you demonstrate toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus indeed died for our sin and has risen, Lord, that we might be approved, that we might have his righteousness imputed to us, that we have the promise of spending all of eternity in your presence beyond confusion and chaos and conflict, but in complete peace and joy and contentment. Now, Lord, we pray that you will give us converts and disciples for fulfilling your great commission here in this place that you will bless our resources and make us faithful stewards. Lord, I'm grateful for the staff that you've assembled here. And I pray that you will protect, fill, and bless each of them and their families. And now as we turn our attention to your blessed word, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. Lord, they're ready to obey, to follow you. No matter what your instructions may be, to trust you with all that we are, that you might be glorified, that you might be honored. For we ask this today in Jesus' name, amen and amen. I want to uh, piggyback on what Nathan said earlier and just thank all of you that came out yesterday and helped. What a great day, a beautiful day, and uh, it was just a great evidence of our church, so many that we had signed up and committed, and even those who didn't sign up and showed up anyway, one young man told me that he came uh, expecting to be there for a limited amount of time, and he was having such a good time, he didn't leave. He just stayed all day. Miss Phyllis was there all day, and uh, she may have needed someone to massage her feet last night, but um, she spent all day there. Thank all of you. What an incredible testimony that you presented. Consider this mission statement of a well-known university. This is what it says, and I quote, To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. The seminary, or this college, was founded in 1636, and it employed these practices, exclusively Christian professors, 
emphasized character formation in its students above all else, and emphasized equipping ministers to share the good news. Diplomas that came from this institution read, Truth for Christ and the Church. You've probably heard of this school. It's called Harvard University. Only 80 years after its founding, a group of New England pastors sensed that Harvard had begun to drift from its moorings. Concerned by its secularization, they approached a wealthy philanthropist who shared their concerns. And with Elu Yale financing their efforts in 1718, they began Yale University. Yale's motto was not just veritas or truth, but lux et veritas, light and truth. While Harvard's and Yale's legacy of academic excellence, we would say today, probably continues and is still intact, neither school resembles at all what it was founded to be. At Harvard's 350th anniversary, for those of you who are math challenged, that would have been 1986, so almost 40 years ago, Stephen Muller, former president of John Hopkins University, said this. He said, the bad news is the university has become godless. Larry Summers, former president at Harvard, confessed, things divine have been central neither to my professional nor my personal life. Harvard's and Yale's founders were unmistakably clear in their goals, their academic excellence, and their Christian formation. Today, those entities do something very different from their founding purposes. What happened to Harvard and what happened to Yale is called mission drift. And it's something that we're all prone to fall into, if not careful. Genesis 19 is approximately 25 years, 24 years uh, since Abraham was summoned from the land of Ur, called out by God for a distinct mission. God called Abraham, we've talked about this in recent weeks, and sent him out. What, what we called him to do was, he said, I'm going to bless you with many descendants. You're going to be a great people. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to change the world. I'm going to bless all peoples through you. This is the mission. And when Abram left Ur and began to make his way to what we know as Canaan or modern-day Israel, Abram brought with him his wife, all of his possessions, and his nephew named Lot. I think it's reasonable for us to assume that God read Lot and Sarah into God's mission for them. In fact, we might even say he would have indoctrinated them, especially Lot, because Abram thought, he suspected at some point, since he and Sarah were getting older, that Lot would be the one, the heir to be, the one through which the promise would come. So he shared this call of God with his nephew, a land numerous people, a blessing to all nations, people of God, God's people. Yet, we find as we've studied about Lot in recent weeks that he's primarily controlled by the flesh. The scripture tells us, the apostle Peter wrote in his letters, 
that Lot was a righteous man. Not righteous because he behaved righteously, but righteous because God declared him righteous, imputed righteousness to him. And yet he's acting unrighteous in so many ways. Controlled by the flesh, not by God's Spirit. This particular section of Scripture is often ignored for the reason that uh, you heard a few moments ago. Akeem told you it's an uncomfortable passage. It's an ugly passage. In fact, the entire chapter of Genesis 19 is somewhat ugly. We have a hard time getting our minds around some of the things that take place in this passage. So why is it there? Did God just make a mistake? Did the editor not know that this was not going to be something we needed to hear in this day and age? I think quite the opposite. I think the editor, God himself, realized these are things we need to hear. These are things that we need to consider. God has a plan and a purpose for it all, and there's something here for us to take away, something for us to learn that's important and has value for us, even in the day in which we live. There are basically three points to this, to this section of Scripture. We're going to see Lot's faithless choices. We're going to observe his flawed leadership, and we're also going to see a failed legacy. Bad choices, failed leadership, and a flawed legacy, a failed legacy. So let's start. Let's think about Lot's faithless choices. I'm going to take you back. You can turn and follow along, but you don't have to. You can just listen closely. Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. You know the story. Abram had lost his way with God and had moved down into Egypt in order to preserve his family during a time of famine. He ended up with egg on his face. He had to leave there and move back to the area, and he was blessed. God blessed him abundantly. Lot was still with him. Lot was blessed. And they grew so well, they were prospered so much that they couldn't survive together. Their livestock was taking up all the resources of the land, and their servants were beginning to uh, show some jealousy and interacting in a negative way. And so Abraham told his nephew, take your possessions, and you go in another direction. I'll go in this direction. You choose which one you want to go. But we need to separate in order to continue to thrive. And this is what Genesis 13, verse 10 And following says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw, very important, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. Now, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent or pitched his tent facing Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Genesis chapter 14, verses 12 and verse 16. They also took Lot. Remember we talked about the kings, the alliance of kings up in the north who came down to pillage and to steal and they abducted Lot and his family and many people from this Jordan Valley and they took them back 
north, as far as the, um, into Damascus even. This is what we read. They took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. So not only has he pitched his tent toward Sodom, he's now dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Verse 16, then he, speaking about Abram, who took his servants, 318 of them, and they pursued these kings and uh, all this plunder that they had taken and took back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. He's no longer just got his tent pitched toward Sodom. He's no longer just living in Sodom. He's now hanging out with the leaders in Sodom. And you'll remember he took those angels into his own house and he was looking to protect them because he knew the character of Sodom was flawed deeply. And all the men, the scripture says, all the men of the city gathered around the house and demanded that he give those visitors into their hands. They had bad intentions. And this is what Lot said, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and you do to them as you please. The angels took charge of the situation and said, you got to leave. God's getting ready to judge this city. Go get your family. Go get your sons-in-law. Go get your daughters, your wife. You must leave now. But the scripture says, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot still argued with them. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. Speaking of Zor. And it is a little one. It's not a big sin like Sodom. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he was granted permission. Now, Zor was on the edge of the Jordan Valley. Not in the middle like Sodom, but just out on the edge, on the boundary. So, you see, you get the picture here. Lot was willing to escape Sodom, but he still wanted to keep his foot in the land where it was lush and where prosperity loomed. He wasn't willing to follow God's instructions completely unconditionally he put conditions upon it it was partial obedience and his he and his daughters quickly left zor his wife looked back longingly and was turned into a pillar of salt so he but the scripture says as we look in this text this morning that they left they went up out of zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters why? Because it says he was afraid to live in Zor. Why? Well, we're not told exactly why. But as I read this, I can't help but think about 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
Everything about Lot, apart from God declaring him righteous in the word of God, screams unrighteous. He makes bad decisions. He's based upon bad methodology. He's using his eyes to do this. He's not listening to God. He's not seeking advice from God. He's not praying to God. He's he's doing all this in his own strength, in his own wisdom. And it just goes in a wrong direction every time. Now, maybe the people of Zor knew he was from Sodom. Maybe someone recognized him and said, hey, you were in Sodom, weren't you? And maybe they began to talk and said, you know, this is the guy right here that brought that curse down upon Sodom. Kind of like Jonah when he was on the boat, you know, in the storm and they started murmuring among themselves, somebody here is responsible that we're being attacked and judged by God. So we need to get rid of somebody. Jonah said, it's me. And they threw him overboard and everything calmed down, didn't they? So did they assume that he was just connected or responsible for what happened? We don't know. Maybe Lot recognized the same sins in Zor that he had seen in Sodom and said it's just a matter of time. If God judged Sodom, he's going to judge Zor as well. We don't know. He doesn't tell us clearly here. Lot and his daughters moved out of Zor and they moved into a cave in the hills. Now caves are frequently associated with death. It's where they buried their dead in caves. Many think Lot finally came to his senses and obeyed God's command, going to the hills away from this judgment. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. The second point I want you to see is not only Lot's flawed choices, but also his flawed leadership. This is one of the more troubling passages in all of Scripture. As we read it, we just can't comprehend what's taking place. It's disturbing. It's unnatural to our minds. But I believe it was quite reasonable to the minds of these girls who had grown up in Sodom. That's what's disturbing. Imagine what they had experienced and seen as they grew up in Sodom. If every man in there was willing to to act upon his lust and his fleshly passions with this egregious act toward guests showing up, imagine what they had seen through the years. Imagine, Imagine your own dad offering you to a sexually perverse mob in order to save guests in his own house. Imagine knowing that your pledged husbands were part of that mob. It was a wicked, vile city, and this was all they had known. Lot's failure as a spiritual leader is quite obvious. His wife died as a result of defiance and disobedience to God. His daughters were carelessly pledged to unrighteous men there in Sodom. All were likely taken hostage by the alliance of kings in Genesis 14, and had it not been for Abraham... They'd still been there. Lot's poor decisions must have had a devastating impact upon his daughter's well-being. They're only equipped and prepared for ungodly, flesh-driven reasoning. Their hope for the future is tethered to their own self-reliance. You know, all people, even God's people, we struggle with this, do we not? We face these critical moments in our lives virtually every day. 
We remember Abram faced that famine and he took matters into his own hands. He relied upon his own wisdom and he went down to Egypt in order to preserve his family. He lied to Pharaoh there in order to try to save his, his own neck. God unraveled that lie and exposed him and enabled him to escape. He also demonstrated some redeemed choices. He faced with lots of abduction. He could have stayed where he was and just ignored it, but he rallied what he had, the resources he had, and he went in pursuit in obedience to God. We have to believe God led this and that God gave him the victory. Faced with temptation to prosper himself, when he came back, Melchizedek offered that opportunity to him, and he refused. He said, I'm, I'm going to trust God for my provision. So we've seen both out of Abraham. We only see one side out of Lot. It's very interesting. Lot failed to learn much of anything from Abraham as far as we can see. He certainly failed to raise his daughters according to God's word. What does Proverbs 22, 6 say? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Note the reference back to Genesis 18 and 19 here. For I have chosen him, God's describing Abram's calling, and he says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So Lot missed that lesson. Lot wasn't following that pattern in his life, and it's evidenced in his daughters. This word to train up, it means to dedicate, to dedicate or to initiate toward something, toward in the way, a right moral orientation by pointing to the kinds of conduct that pleases or even those that displease the Lord and to the expected normal outcomes that come from that obedience or disobedience. A lot failed to teach, to train, to rear his daughters in the way of the Lord. And this comes into full bloom and is clearly evident in our third point, which is Lot's failed legacy. We see his daughters drowning in desperation here. Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us. Can I just ask this question? Where is Lot at this moment? He's absent again. This has probably been the way he has fathered all along. They are drowning in desperation. It's just the three of them now. They're in a cave. You would think Lot would step up to the plate, right? But he's not even, the, he's somewhere. Maybe he's over imbibing in the wine that he brought with him. He's noticeably absent. He's offering no spiritual guidance. And they feel they need to make something happen. Now, I said earlier, some believe Lot corrected course here by going to the hills. Wasn't that the instruction he got to start with was flee Sodom and go to the hills so you escape this judgment? I don't think that's what happened. James Boyce thinks, and I tend to agree with him, that when the angels told Lot to flee to the mountains, they were pointing him to Mamre where Abraham was. Where Abraham was residing, where Abraham was thriving. But he went in the opposite direction. Again, like Jonah. 
You see, the Moabites and the Ammonites, the land that they would eventually inhabit, would end up being east of the Jordan Valley. So they would be east. Abraham was west. He was in the mountains to the west. The boy says he thinks when the angels told him to flee to the mountains, they were saying, go back to Abraham. Go back in that direction. But you see, had Lot gone back in that direction, he would have had to confess and admit his mistake, right? His bad choice. The errors of his ways. But that doesn't seem to be something he's comfortable doing. Many people have compared Lot even to the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's fair, I suppose, but it's not very accurate. Think about the prodigal. What do we know about the prodigal? Well, when he came to the end of himself, when he realized he was in trouble, he admitted his condition. He owned up to it. He faced it. He humbled himself and returned to his father. And there he confessed his sin and didn't expect or didn't feel entitled to be restored to a sonship. He was willing to come on board as a servant. Just make me a servant in your house. We never see anything like that coming from Lot. Not one time. He did none of these things. And the daughters are cut out of the same fabric. Now listen, this is an important matter for them. Their dad is old. He can't look after them much longer. In the world in which they lived, they had no father, they had no husband, they had no sons. And that meant they had no future. The only future they had would be what they could sell themselves to do, be, become servants for someone else or become prostitutes. Is the only way they could make it. We would think with the condition they were in, that they would have learned something from the visit from the angels and the deliverance that God gave them. But we don't see or hear them calling upon God's name, seeking his wisdom or his direction in their life. They conjured up something in their own minds. They said, let's get him drunk. He's already probably helping himself along on this on a daily basis. And so they decide to lean into that. Make sure that he gets drunk and then we will sleep with him and we will have children through our father. Now we can give a slight nod to Lot. Apparently they didn't think he would go along with it. And twice we're told in the text that he did not know what was going on. But I think Lot lived this way. I think the evidence supports that he just lived not knowing much of anything. What a waste, right? What a waste. And this incestuous plan produced two sons, Moab, which means from father, and Ben-Ami, son of my kinsman. The daughters remain anonymous and disappear from Scripture. This was their one cameo in Scripture. They're not even named. They and Ishmael's descendants, though, the descendants from Moab and Ben-Ami, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they torment God's people even today. Have you looked at the news this week, this weekend? Israel's under attack. From whom? Descendants of Moab and Ben-Ami. 
the Arabs. The Arabs from Ishmael and from the Moabites and the Ammonites have all continued to be a thorn in the flesh of God's people because of sin and disobedience. Abraham Abraham was old. Sarah was beyond childbearing. Yet the Lord was able to give uh, them a son. We'll see that coming very soon. But Lot's flawed choices resulted in the loss of his possessions and everything dear to him. And it resulted in a tarnished legacy. He makes it to heaven. How so? How so? It's through the grace of Christ. Through the perfection of Christ. Through the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sin is atoned for. And God imputes righteousness to him. Not because he's done anything to deserve it. Not because he's acted in a pleasing way to the Father. But out of the grace of God, purely out of the grace of God, he is forgiven and restored to be one of God's chosen people. Isn't that staggering? The grace of God is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. But listen, if God can and will do that for Lot, can and will he do it for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the blood sacrifice, the life given by Christ is sufficient for all sin. There's nothing, nothing that cannot be forgiven through Christ. Nothing. Nothing prior to today, nothing after today. All sin for all time that we commit is atoned for in Christ. And many of us claim to follow him today. And so we we rejoice in this text. In the reality that Lot is redeemed. He is declared righteous by God in spite of his sin. That gives us all hope that in Christ we too have been declared righteous. And we are in covenant with him. We have a clear mission. That mission is to proclaim His grace so that others may hear and respond. But it's tempting and easy for us to fall prey to mission drift. To thinking that God has saved us just for our own benefit. To fall into the same category as Lot and just pursue our own comforts and pleasures and prosperity. We live in a lush land. It's easy for us to become complacent and presume upon God's grace. That he owes it to us. That we're entitled to it somehow because we're good people. We're not like Lot. But it doesn't work that way. It's imperative that we evaluate our lives. That we reject the presence of Lot's attitudes and practices in our lives. That we understand because of the grace of Christ that is ours, that that we are empowered through Him to live differently. To live in a way that honors His name, that exalts His name before others. And it is only through His Spirit within us that we're capable of doing that. 
to make a decision that says, I don't want to be like Lot. I want to learn as Abraham did. I'm not going to be perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect, but Abraham shows us a learning curve. He's, he's learning. He's growing in the grace that God has provided for him. He's maturing in the faith. He struggled to believe God at times. But as God pointed these things out to him and let him suffer through some of his bad choices, Abraham learns to make better choices. He learns that God is faithful and that I can lean in and trust his faithfulness. If you are adrift, if you are struggling with mission drift, I want to challenge you today to own it. To own it. God is a good, benevolent, caring, compassionate, redemptive, restorative God. He's not a punitive God. He's a just God, which means that justice will prevail on those who refuse to repent and lean into His righteousness. But for those of us who know him, that have been redeemed through Christ, he's not sitting there looking with lightning bolts to throw them at us every time we step out of line. He's calling and beckoning us back to himself and says, here's where your prosperity is. Here's where your blessing is. Here's where the lushness is. Come to me. Stop trying to do it yourself. Stop trusting your own flesh, your own wisdom. Lean into me, trust me, humble yourself and return to the Lord like the prodigal. Confess your sin and commit to grow in faith and obedience to him. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced the grace of Christ, then certainly you should be encouraged today that there's nothing, nothing you have done, nothing that you have done that can thwart the grace of God. He is ready and able Christ's crucifixion upon that cross is sufficient. His shed blood is sufficient to atone for your sin, to make you right with God, that you might have his approval and acceptance into his presence. Throw yourself on his mercy seat today. Cry out to him and say, Lord, save me from myself. Change me according to your plans and purposes for your glory And for my blessing, may it be so. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are, for how you work and move in our lives. Lord, we don't always understand the things that you're doing, but we trust your word that says that you always point us in a way that is uh, for our good. Lord, we don't always understand all these things surrounding someone like Lot's life, but We're thankful that you've given us that example that we can uh, be encouraged, encouraged to realize that there's hope for us to turn from sin and to trust you and that, Lord, your steadfast love indeed is enduring beyond anything we can imagine, certainly beyond the endurance that we practice. I pray that you would just take your word and you would pierce our hearts today in a way that honors you, that glorifies you. And that continues, Lord, to um, raise us up as your children uh, in a way that uh, proclaims your gospel to those that we live in and around each and every day. 
that they too might be drawn to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.